Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For today's show, I have three new movies to review for you. One is exclusively in theaters, and the other two are in... Um, are available on Netflix, actually. They're on streaming, specifically on Netflix. They could have been released in theaters, but they weren't. But I'm going to naturally start with the film that was released in theaters, actually the only new film that was in wide release this past weekend. And by this past weekend, I mean May 13th through 15th, 2022. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Firestarter. It is both a remake of the 1984 movie starring Drew Barrymore and several other people. And it is also equally based on the science fiction horror thriller novel by Stephen King that was first published in September of 1980. And this was one of Stephen King's first books that he published after Carrie, Salem's Lots, The Shining, and The Dead Zone, and he has not stopped writing since. But the movie is about a young girl who tries to understand how she mysteriously gained the power to set things on fire with her mind. And she is one of these characters that is very young, uh, probably no older than 10, although the movie doesn't exactly specify what age she is. Her name is um, Charlene McGee, but she is affectionately known as uh, Charlie to her friends and family. And she's played by a young actress by the name of Ryan Kiera Armstrong. Her father is Andrew, or Andy McGee, and he is played by Zac Efron. And while Charlie has the ability to set things on fire with her mind, she is not the only one that possesses other uh, powers. For example... Her father, uh, Andy, Zac Efron's character, is actually telepathic, and he is able to develop telepathy, but his eyes bleed when he tries to read people's minds. And I thought that was actually a very uh, good characteristic of his telepathy. But not only that, but his, but her mother, uh, Vicki Tomlinson-McGee, who's played by Sidney Lemon, is uh, telekinetic. And the difference between telepathic and telekinetic is uh, telekinetic is a claimed uh, psychic ability allowing a person to influence a physical system without physical interaction. So telekinetic means having the ability to move things with your mind. And these abilities of Vicky and Andy McGee are, I think, revealed way too late in the movie. In addition to that, there is somebody who's actually after them. This family is so fearful of their own powers as well as the revelation of these powers that they are constantly on the run. And as is typical of most Stephen King films, uh, they when we meet them, are settled in uh, Lewiston, Maine. And I have nothing against um, Stephen King movies being set in Maine, but some people think it's a little bit too typical. I 
think it's just fine. Although I am biased considering that I am actually from Maine. But when Charlie does not know how to control her ability for uh, to set fires, also known as pyrokinesis, which is actually a term, um, she is ultimately found by a leader of a place called The Shop, which is not exactly a mom-and-pop store on Main Street. It's actually a government center where they study people who have these special powers. Her name is Captain Hollister, and she's played in one of the better performances in this movie by Gloria Rubin. And at the same time, there's also a bounty hunter whose name is John Rainbird, whose name is who's played by Michael Gray Eyes, who is a um, indigenous uh, Canadian actor, and he is assigned by the shop to track down Charlie and also kill anyone who gets in his way. And while this movie does have a good story behind it, I did feel like it was underdeveloped, and when the movie ended, I really wanted more. I wanted to know more about even some of the main characters, and I just didn't really get that. And this is one of those films where I was watching it and thinking to myself, how am I going to describe what doesn't work about this movie to you, the listening audience? And great movies are very easy to describe why they're great. Terrible movies are really easy to describe why they're terrible. But this movie just didn't really uh, do it for me. I thought that it was particularly forgettable. I didn't think the performances in the film were especially worth remembering, with the exception of uh, Gloria Rubin. And not even Zac Efron, who's who's been who's who's had a bit of a hot streak when it's come to being in films. He's on the A list now after his High School Musical days, and re- he really has earned his place in the A list lexicon because his performances have been consistently good. But here he was kind of drab and forgettable, and I really wanted to know more about how he and his wife being telepathic and telekinetic respectively, uh, how they met and also maybe a little bit more about why they went on the run the way they did and how somebody who's telepathic and telekinetic can produce someone who is pyrokinetic. I wanted a little bit more of a, just a little bit of an explanation and also I wasn't quite sure if Gloria Rubin's character, Captain Hollister, was good or bad. And maybe that was the idea of the character. She seemed like a genuine person. And when uh, Charlie reaches the shop, she actually meets Gloria, uh, Gloria Rubin's character. And Captain Hollister explains to Charlie that she can stay at this place, she can stay safe, and she can know how best to use her powers and to control them, which sounds to me like a really good deal. But for some reason, it's just not good enough for the McGee family, and they are always on the run. And I would just imagine that being on the run all the time would be tiring, but... 
I don't know. I, I just felt like the special effects in this movie were decent, but it was just bogged down with so many stereotypes and worn archetypes as well as movie character cliches, particularly amongst Stephen King books. Now, Stephen King is a great author with an amazing imagination, but sometimes some of the stock characters can be overused. For instance, there's a scene where Charlie McGee is in gym class and the other kids, you know, call her a freak. And there's really no reason for it. It's just a typical, stereotypical bully there. And that has been very indicative of other Stephen King books, uh, Stephen King stories, I should say, including um, some of his best ones. So Firestarter, for a movie that came out on Friday the 13th, had very little in terms of scares. It wasn't particularly thrilling or as thrilling as it should have been. And when the movie ended, I wanted to know more about just about all of the characters. So... Firestarter was a letdown. I can't compare it to the original 1984 film starring Drew Barrymore because I haven't seen that film. I only know it by reputation, but it is a strikeout. I I thought that the characters weren't very well developed. The special effects weren't particularly impressive. I thought that it should have been a lot more thrilling than it ultimately was. And even a lot of the acting from many of the principal and supporting characters could have used a lot of work. So Firestarter is a film that very much lacked a spark, especially when it should have. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Senior Year, a film that is a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on May 13th, 2022. It is the feature film directorial debut of Alex Hardcastle, who is a, a British director who has had extensive experience directing TV episodes as well as TV movies, but this is technically his first feature film. Now, with Netflix and other streaming platforms releasing uh, movies, they have blurred the lines between movies that are theatrically released and those that are made for TV. I, I think arguably HBO could have done the same thing, but there is a difference between HBO films and films that are released theatrically in, in a lot of um, ways that I won't get into right now, but I would technically call Senior Year a feature film, not necessarily a made-for-TV movie, and it is also rated R, whereas TV movies with the explicitness of a Senior Year and other such movies are usually rated TVMA, so we'll call it a feature film. But anyway... Senior Year is about a woman who lands herself in a 20-year coma after a cheerleading stunt that has gone wrong. She was the cheerleader. 
she attempted to do some very uh, daring cheerleader move, and as a result, she ended up in a coma for 20 years. When she awakes, she is in the body of Rebel Wilson. Uh, She is 37 years old, and she is ready to live out her high school dream, becoming prom queen. Now, when I first read the synopsis of this movie last week on my segment, What's Coming Up Next?, where I give a spoken word preview of movies that are coming out um, in theater or in theaters and on streaming. I mentioned that when you're 37, you're probably not interested in reliving your high school years. But this was probably the most believable part of uh, this movie because, after all, Rebel Wilson is waking up after a 20 year coma, even though her. Physically, she's 37 years old. Mentally, she's still 17. So I can understand how when somebody wakes up after 20 years, they would still be in that mindset that they were before going into a coma. And I think that the way she went into a coma is probably medically unrealistic, particularly going into a coma for 20 years and being in a normal hospital bed and having a feeding tube for 20 whole years. I think back in 2005, uh, Terry Schiavo, who was uh, mentally handicapped um, and on a feeding tube, was was on that, um, that life support for less time, but... Anyway, I don't think this movie is going for realism in particular. But as I said previously, somebody who's come out of a coma after 20 years and is still in that 17-year-old mindset, I can totally understand them wanting to, if they really, really liked high school, uh, go back for the, the remaining three months and live out the rest of their traditional senior year. What I did not get about this movie was... High school in 2022. So when Rebel Wilson's character, whose name is Stephanie Conway, who is actually an immigrant from uh, Australia, and he uh, she has an Australian mother and an American father. The American father is Jim Conway, and he's played by Chris Parnell. And I'm I'm thankful Chris Parnell didn't put on an Australian accent, but. At the same time, it's not really explained very well how Chris Parnell's character met his Australian wife. Was he in Australia? How long was he in Australia for? Why was he in Australia? That would have been good to know. And I think that it could have been explained in about a three-minute segment. But regardless, Rebel Wilson still keeps her Australian accent because she was raised in Australia before moving to the United States at the age of 14. And I've seen Rebel Wilson in some films do an American accent, but I think her Australian accent is so uh, characteristic of who she is as a character actress that it's really not worth covering that up. So I do think that was also a good move. But as I said, I did not get what the high school had become 20 years later, 
I mean, I know damn well what high school was like in 2002 because that was the year that I graduated. And I could also assume that high school is much different now because kids had smartphones and kids in my high school, most of them didn't even have cell phones and they were notoriously expensive. And I went to high school in a relatively poor town. So virtually nobody had cell phones and the smartphone hadn't been invented yet. But what I didn't get about the Harding high school in this movie is the kind of the environment of the high school specifically in this high school, they've done away with the, uh, prom King and queen. So as not to hurt anyone's feelings, they've arranged the cafeteria table so that there's no table for the popular kids. And the high school kids are all in on this. They say, you know, when the, when the cafeteria tables are like this, everyone is equal. No, that is not the case at all. First of all, if the administration tries to set rules that makes everybody inclusive, then I I would imagine that high school kids are smart enough to not fall for that. And also, when everyone is inclusive and everyone is on the same popularity level, then no one is. And it's kind of like if everyone is included, then no one is. And I just didn't really buy the way that the high school was in this film uh, in 2022. And I really felt that unlike other movies that take place in high school, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Heathers or Mean Girls, I wasn't getting a, a very, shall we say, accurate representation even at a satirical level about what it's like to be in high school now. And I felt like I got that from those other films, those other films that I mentioned fast times at Ridgemont high amongst them felt real. It didn't feel satirical or like some sort of parody. And here I felt like the high school was a Fox news nightmare And I'm not one of those Fox News people at all, but even I was looking at this and thinking, this is a pipe dream for very, very misguided liberals, really stupid liberals at that, because there is no way a high school dynamic like this would sustain itself. And yes, there was a lot that sucked about high school. I was there. I know. And my 20th high school reunion is this year. I haven't heard about any plans for it, but if there are plans, I'm not going because even though my high school experience wasn't terrible, there are some people in high school whom, if I never see them again for the rest of my life, that is perfectly okay with me. But I think on top of that, this movie kind of fell into the sort of cliche high school movie category uh, tropes where... Rebel Wilson's character is so concerned about becoming prom queen and becoming popular. And in the very end, thanks in large part to a cameo, a credited cameo by Alicia Silverstone, she realizes that popularity in high school, big surprise, isn't everything. And that is the lesson about so many other high school movies that have not been directed by or produced by John Hughes. And 
I just felt like this movie was just full of so many um, stereotypes, not ethnic stereotypes, um, thank goodness. This movie did have a diverse cast of actors in it, which I commend it for having. But the the stereotypes I'm, I'm talking about are the ones about the woke liberals. Again, this is either a Fox News conservatives nightmare, in other words, an extreme conservatives nightmare, or it's a, a misguided liberals pipe dream. And in the end, when you have that kind of dynamic, no one really wins. So senior year is a miss for me. In addition to the fact that I like Rebel Wilson and I do think she's funny, but I just didn't buy her in this movie as the uh, comic lead. I thought that nine out of ten things that she said were missed more than it hit in terms of being funny, and it just delved into the uh, sort of cliche categories while trying to sidestep those cliches. In addition to that, the movie is rated R, and I don't have anything against R-rated movies, but the reason, the only reason, the only reason it's rated R is because of language. Because characters say the F word a total of about 10 times. And I do think that if they had cut down those F words to one or two, the movie would have gotten the PG-13 rating that it deserved. Because I think that this movie isn't edgy enough for older teen audiences, and it's also way too fluffy for modern um, modern adult moviegoers. They're just going to watch this film, both older teens and adults, and just think about better high school movies like the ones I just mentioned. And the ones I just mentioned weren't even the ones that were written or directed by John Hughes, but they stood the test of time even though the fashions and the music are out of date because there was something fundamental about high school in those movies to to the movie's core. And I think that's something that teenagers who discover these films on their local streaming platforms, local streaming, on their whatever streaming platforms they watch, would be able to see and identify. But... Senior Year is not one of those movies. It's really a lot of fluff, and it gets my rating of a very low strikeout. It's not a flunk out because I think that Rebel Wilson tried her best with this film, and it, and it's obvious that she is giving it all she has now, but the whole woke culture and just the idea that there are no popular cliques, let me tell you. Even though maybe there shouldn't exactly be clicks, if you didn't have have them in high school, somebody, somebody would invent them. And I really wanted an honest look at high school in 2022, especially after the pandemic. But I didn't really get that sense from senior year. So unfortunately... Senior year is a big miss for many other reasons besides the ones I mentioned here.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie we're going to be reviewing for you is a documentary that was actually not in my What's Coming Up Next segment last week. It was probably not listed there. But the movie is called Our Father. It is not only a Netflix original, but is also distributed by Bloomhouse. And this is, I believe, the first documentary that Bloomhouse has ever released. But don't take my word on that. It's certainly the first documentary that I've seen. And Bloomhouse is a very, very profitable movie studio that has not made the best horror films, let alone the best films, but they have taken movies that have been made for probably only about 5 or $10 million and made millions in profit from them. For that reason, I do tip my hat to them, but I think Our Father shows that Maybe they should just stick to what they know rather than try to get into documentaries because this documentary looks like a horror film in its very staged footage and it looks like a relatively bad or laughable horror film. It's directed by Lucy Jordan. This is Lucy Jordan's directorial debut. She has not directed anything previously, but she has been a producer for several uh, TV series, uh, including one episode of TLC Presents back in 2014. And TLC, despite their initials being the Learning Channel, has not been educational for a while. But she's also been um, Senior Vice President of Development on a show called Death by Gossip with Wendy Williams, as well as Fame Kills... Only in America with Larry the Cable Guy and other such shows. So this is her directorial debut uh, for anything. She hasn't directed any short films or uh, any TV episodes before this. So I think for a first-time director and one that's had at least uh, 20 years in the TV industry like she has, it's... A pretty good documentary, but it's not great. And I think one of the things that that kills this documentary is the fact that it uses staged footage and not very good staged footage to fill in the blanks with the narrative in this film. For example, there are people who are interviewed for this movie, but then also like Unsolved Mysteries, you see people who are clearly not the people interviewed who are acting as the people in the film. And I really think that they could have used other archive footage from news reports as well as websites and even just showing newspapers. And that would have probably given this movie a lot more credibility than it ultimately has. And also there's a scene at the very beginning where it shows what is supposed to be this fertility clinic. And then you see the back of somebody's head uh, sitting at a desk and he's shaking. And when you, when you know that it's a fertility clinic, you know what the guy is shaking and what he is, why he's shaking and what he is trying to do. Though the way I just interpreted that is very um, 
dirty when you really think about it, but I'll just move on. So what is Our Father about? It is about a woman who, after uh, taking an at-home DNA test, um, finds out that she has multiple half-siblings. And why does she have multiple half-siblings? Because she discovers a shocking scheme involving donor sperm and a popular fertility doctor. So this uh, woman who discovers that she has multiple half-siblings from a uh, DNA test uh, is named Jacoba Ballard. And she um, has discovered from this DNA test her multiple siblings because the reason she took the test was because she found that she had blonde hair and blue eyes, whereas her parents had dark hair and either brown or green eyes. And genetically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But she ultimately discovered that her uh, mother, Debbie Pierce, could not initially conceive children because her um, because her husband was infertile. So she visits a doctor whose name is Donald Klein, and within a couple of visits to Dr. Klein, she becomes pregnant. And th- this in vitro fertilization is was something that was revolutionary in the 70s when Debbie Pierce tried to uh, conceive children and ultimately succeeded from a fertility doctor. But um, ultimately, Jacoba Ballard finds that not only does she have multiple half-siblings, but she also shares the same genetic makeup as Dr. Klein. And, of course, the idea that a, a fertility doctor would inject his patients with his own sperm is very creepy to a certain extent. I think it's probably less creepy than making these people, making these women unconscious and then um, having unprotected sex with them, thereby raping them. That's a lot more creepy. But Dr. Klein did tell these uh, women that these were um, other donors of these various uh, genetic features. And what Jacoba ultimately encountered was that she not only had a couple of half-siblings, she had more than 10. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what, um, how many she had, because that's one of the biggest surprises of the film. And that should have been intriguing in and of itself. But unfortunately, I think that the way this movie was shot was more like a horror film than a documentary. And when you have a documentary that is filmed like a horror film with some of the muted colors that the cinematographer used in episodes of Ozark, it feels less like a documentary and more like exploitation. And I would have thought that Netflix knew better than to release an exploitative documentary like this. And also the poster of the movie, it shows a doctor in very, uh, in a very dark light holding these uh, paper dolls, which immediately brings to mind certain horror films or certain posters of horror films, which I didn't think that the movie really needed. And I also felt as though the movie did not trust its 
narrative instincts. It should have been shocking in and of itself to have people who were fertilized by this doctor who are technically related. That's creepy in and of itself. But for some reason, this movie with its muted colors and its attempt to make this film less documentary and more horror was not only exploitative, but it was also very surprisingly dull. In fact, I nodded off a few times, and there was also one um, scene at the very end where somebody who is the biological daughter of Donald Klein also uh, noted that Dr. Klein was her gynecologist. Let me say that again. Her father was her gynecologist. That is so medically unethical, it makes me sick to just say it. And this doctor was ultimately brought to court for his um, sketchy fertilization, but he was only given a fine. And the movie is very vague about what happened to Donald Klein because he's still alive. It doesn't say if he's still practicing medicine. It doesn't say if the American Medical Association has stripped away his doctor's license because they had a pretty damn good chance. Instead, they just focused on how many siblings Jacoba Ballard actually had. And for that reason, this is probably one of the least impactful documentaries that I've seen. And it also neglects its responsibility to tell a story because it seemed like it jam-packed the most interesting parts of this movie at the very beginning and at the very end while also filling in the blanks with very seemingly exploitative archive or rather uh, filler footage that was comprised of actors that probably wouldn't pass muster in a dinner theater. So Our Father is a movie that I think should be probably it it, it should be considered a, a, t- a made for TV movie or at least it's of that quality and it is rated TVMA because it does tackle a very dark and let's face it a very creepy subject but you also don't hear from the parents obviously the children who were given this uh, who were birthed because of this um, fertilization doctor had something to complain about, but what about the mothers? You don't really hear very much from them either, which is why our father gets my rating of a flunk out. This is probably the worst documentary I've seen in a while. It is exploitative. It is, um, narratively imbalanced and it just does not get to the heart of what is really creepy about this kind of medical practice and also the fact that the doctor in this movie just does not get what he really deserves. He's not in prison. We don't know whether or not he's still practicing. I would imagine as a doctor who's practicing in the late seventies, he's retired by now, but you never get that answer from the documentary. And that is really, really disappointing.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and on streaming for the week of, or yeah, the week of May 16th through May 20th, 2022. The first movie, the biggest movie that's going to be released in theaters the weekend before Memorial Day weekend is Downton Abbey, A New Era. This is, of course, based on the very popular Downton Abbey TV show that actually gave PBS a comeback that nobody really saw coming. And it is also a follow-up to the 2019 feature film, also called Downton Abbey, in which the Crawley family and the Downton staff received a royal visit from the king and queen of Great Britain. And I think this movie takes place in the 1950s. So, well, actually, if it was the 1950s, that means there's a queen, but there's no king. Because uh, Queen Elizabeth was married, but her husband was a prince, not a king. Uh, Which makes me kind of wonder, who do I have to marry to be king of England? But anyway, (laughs) so... Downton Abbey, A New Era. I'm not sure what era it is, and truth be told, I'm not going to see this film for a number of reasons. Number one, I'm not really familiar with Downton Abbey. I've seen a couple of episodes here and there, but my parents know Downton Abbey a lot better than I do. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, I have not seen the original 2019 film, and I have a rule with sequels that I have to see the original before I see the sequel. And I'm not planning on doing that, so Downton Abbey, A New Era, is a movie I will not see for next week's show, but if you want to see it, by all means, go ahead. There's another film that is coming out in theaters, or is subject to be released in theaters on May 20th, and that movie is called Men. Yep, that's the name of the movie. It's Men. And it's a movie about a young woman who goes on a solo vacation to the English countryside following the death of her ex-husband, which doesn't sound like a movie that's named Men, but I don't exactly know what to tell you. The, The description here is kind of vague, but apparently this is not a romantic comedy, even though the premise sounds like it. It is a drama, horror, and sci-fi movie. And you could tell from the poster, uh, given its dark, muted colors, that it is a horror film. But the movie stars... Papa Esedu, Gail Rankin, Sarah Twomey, and Zach Rothera Oxley. Not um, actors with whom I am familiar, but the movie is directed by Alex Garland, who is a British director. He's actually been nominated for an Oscar, and, and that Oscar was for Best Writing Original Screenplay for the movie Ex Machina. And, yeah, apparently Alex Garland has written Ex Machina, which I thought was an excellent film. Oh, he also directed it. That was his feature film debut. And, honestly, Ex Machina should have been nominated for more Academy Awards than it ultimately ended up being nominated for. And, actually, Alicia Vikander played the fembot in that movie, and she won an Academy Award for another film, but I thought she at least should have been nominated and maybe should have won for Ex Machina. But after that, Alex Garland directed Annihilation, which starred Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, 
and Jennifer Jason Lee, amongst other actresses. And that's a movie, actually, that I didn't especially love when I first saw it. But it was one of those films where the more I thought about it as I left the theater, the more I really appreciated it. And maybe it was the the movie's name sounding a little bit more like a war film than a psychological suspense and science fiction film like it was. But I really hope, even though there are no familiar names in men, unlike Alex Garland's previous directorial efforts, that this movie does come out in a theater near me and that it is good. Because Alex Garland has had an amazing track record, both as a screenwriter and as a director, so far. So Men, if it's coming out in a theater near me, is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've done with the first section of what's coming up next, which revealed the two movies that are subject to being released in theaters nationwide and possibly worldwide, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next on streaming services, beginning with Netflix, which lost a number of subscribers last month and a lot of people who are analyzing the stock markets say that it is slated to lose thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions more next month, but I'm sticking to it, and I am giving them the benefit of the doubt, even though they had two less-than-stellar films that I reviewed for you this week. But on Wednesday, May 18th, there is a film that is coming out of Spain, and it is called The Perfect Family, and this is a Netflix original. And I will tell you what it's about momentarily. Uh, okay, I don't. I, I actually do not have the description for this movie. So I will tell you that it's coming out in, uh, excuse me, on Netflix on Wednesday, May 18th. And you can decide for yourself whether or not you want to see it. It may be a film I will review for you, but in terms of what it's about, I cannot tell you that because I don't have that information. I can tell you about the other Netflix original film, that is coming out on Netflix on Wednesday, May 18th. And it's a film that is called Toscana. And it is about a Danish chef who travels to Tuscany to sell his father's business. But when he's there, he meets a local woman who inspires him to rethink his approach to life and love. This actually sounds a lot like a uh, romantic comedy around the same level as Roman Holiday, and it actually also takes place in Italy. It's directed by a director by the name of Medhi Avaz, and it is technically a Swiss film. And Medhi Avaz has directed films like Collision from 2019, which I have not seen, and While We Live from 2017, which I also have not seen. But if I get around to it, I will... Watch this film, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. On Thursday, May 19th, there is one film that's called 
A Perfect Pairing. And this is a Netflix original, and it is presumably an American film. And it is a film that actually stars Victoria Justice, who was in a Disney Channel show called Victorious, which I haven't seen because I'm an adult. And I think Ariana Grande was on that show too. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, A Perfect Pairing follows a hard-driving L.A. wine company executive who travels to an Australian sheep station to land a major client And there she ends up working as a ranch hand and sparking with a rugged local. This movie sounds very, very, very predictable, especially since Victoria Justice is drop-dead gorgeous. The movie also stars Adam DeMose and Emma Kate Lawrence, amongst other people. It is directed by Stuart McDonald, and Stuart McDonald's directorial efforts have actually included... Some films, but mostly TV shows. The one um, feature film, actually two feature films that I could find, one is called Stranded, and that is a film that I have not seen. It co-stars Emily Browning. I haven't seen it. Uh, The other one, which I just had, is called Oddball. And I don't think I've seen that one either. That one came out in 2015, And it stars Shane Jacobson, Sarah Snook, and Alan Tudyk. But A Perfect Pairing sounds like a very predictable movie. Definitely a little bit more Hallmark than, shall we say, Netflix. But I'm probably going to see it, if only to rip it apart. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. There's also a movie that is subject to being released on Netflix, and it's called The Photographer, Murder in Pinamar. And that seems like one of those uh, Netflix documentaries that is about a murderer and is Netflix's bread and butter. And maybe their romantic comedies like A Perfect Pairing is more like their marmalade. Um, it's It may not be the best for you, but it is delicious. And some people have a craving for it. But the photographer, Murder in Pinamar, I don't know exactly what that's about, but I'll let you know what I think if I see it on net, on next week's show. And on Friday, May 20th, there are uh, there's actually one uh, Netflix original movie that is going to be um, premiering on the platform. It's a film that is foreign, and it's called F Love 2. And by F, I mean the F word. And I it's, it's two as in um, also, not the number two. And... It's a film that is directed by Api Budila and Aram Vanderest. And it stars a number of people who I don't know. And it is a romantic comedy where several friends, each dealing with unhappy love lives, turn to each other for help, but not always with the best results. And let me tell you what uh, country this is from. I would like to think that it is from France, but I don't entirely know. The movie... Um, the websites that I'm searching are not telling me that. Oh, it's actually a Dutch film, so it's from the Netherlands. But am I going to see this film? Maybe. I don't know if I'm necessarily going to love it. But also on Friday, May 20th, and this is kind of ironic, um, Jackass 4.5 is going to be released on Netflix. Not on Paramount+, Plus, but on Netflix. And Jackass 4.5 is what I believe to be the movie Jackass forever 
plus footage they allegedly couldn't show you in theaters. And I got to tell you, I'm not going to say that the Jackass films are high comedic or rather high cinematic value, but man, they are funny. Jackass forever had me in stitches, uh, figuratively while the people on screen were in stitches. Literally, they just did just (laughs) things that you should not try at home, but they do, uh, to themselves, various parts of their body, and they probably develop injuries that the Three Stooges had to deal with in real life. But Jagged 4.5 is a movie that I won't review for you on this show. At least I don't think I will. And the reason for that is because I've already reviewed Jagged Forever months ago, and I said it was hilarious. And I think that if you loved, if you like Jackass, you'll love the movies, and that's really all there is to say. I I don't I, I think that just reviewing the extra footage is a bit of a waste of time. But Jackass four point five is not a Netflix original, but it is premiering on the platform on Friday, May twentieth, and not on Paramount Plus. Interestingly enough, but maybe it's because Paramount thinks that more people are watching Netflix than Paramount Plus. Which they're probably right, but I, I think that's I think that might actually be a good uh, tactic to get people to subscribe to Paramount Plus. But I, of course, am already subscribed. There is one other film that is appearing on Netflix on Friday, May twentieth. It is not a Netflix original, but it's a movie that's called Ben Is Back, and that movie's title sounds very familiar. And yes, indeed, I actually have seen this. This is a movie that stars Julia Roberts, Courtney B. Vance, and Lucas Hedges. And it is about a drug-addicted teenage boy who shows up unexpectedly at his family's home on Christmas Eve. Now, take it from me, it is good that this film came out in May as opposed to December. Because even though it takes place on Christmas Eve, this is a movie, mark my words, you should never, never never watch on Christmas. Now, some people love Christmas. I'm one of those people. Some people hate it. Other people don't celebrate it. But there are great movies to watch on Christmas when you love Christmas. And I don't even have to name what those movies are. And there are some movies that you can watch when you hate Christmas. Like, for example, Black Christmas or Silent Night, Deadly Night. Those are fun horror films if you hate the holidays. And, and maybe they're even fun horror films if you love the holidays. I also really like Krampus. That's another one. But Ben is Back is not a heartfelt movie at all. This is a raw film that even if you hate Christmas, you will watch this film and you will wonder, why is this film so depressing? It is, uh, oh man, it, it, it's a lot. And Lucas Hedges has kind of cornered the market in terms of playing these um, rebellious and troubled teenagers. He did in the movie Manchester by the Sea, and he was deservedly nominated for an Oscar for that film. But he was also very good in Ben is Back, as well as Mid-90s and a few other films. But again, don't wait until the holidays to see this film, even though it takes place on Christmas Eve. Mark my words. It is not that kind of Christmas film, either if you love it, love the holiday season, or you hate it. But anyway, There's one other film that I'm going to mention that is actually premiering on 
Disney Plus, not Netflix, and it is the movie to Chippendale Rescue Rangers. As a kid who came of age in the late 80s and early 90s, this is awesome. What took them so long to make a Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie? Well, the Disney Afternoon was very popular throughout the late 80s and 90s, but when they made one Disney Afternoon film, which was DuckTales the movie Treasure of the Lost Lamp, that came out in between The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast when during what's reputed to be now the Disney Renaissance. But DuckTales the movie, as well as a movie that came after it, The Rescuers Down Under, unlike other animated films from the Disney vault that came out during the Disney Renaissance, was a box office flop. So that's probably why it took so long to make a Chippendale's Rescue Rangers film. But mark my words, this is a film that I will see And I will let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. And I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.